Welcome to the Gaudium et Spes podcast. Every other week, we bring you Catholic teachings and stories of faith from people throughout the Diocese of Pensacola, Tallahassee. This is the Gaudium et Spes podcast. Hello, and welcome to the latest Gaudium et Spes podcast. Chez, how are you today? Good. It is uh, full summertime, feeling the laziness, but also the... Just the sun, the relaxation and stuff like that. Just came off of vacation. Just life is good. Oh, yeah. That's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. We're kind of getting into that time frame down here where we're going to have our afternoon thunderstorms almost every day. Yep. So, um, but yeah, it cools it off a little bit and, and it's uh, it's a great feeling. So, well, good. Well, um, we're here again today um, and uh, we're going to be uh, going over um, the latest in the Bishop Walk's Bible series. Actually, we're concluding it today, but if you hadn't had a chance, please listen to our last episode where we had the pleasure of interviewing Grace, Sophie, and Chris, who are our totus tuus missionaries that are out in our diocese. So um, with that, Ches, I'll hand it over to you. And um, Yeah, it's time for Gaddy Mitzbez. Chapter 1, the first line of that document, um, the joys and hopes, the griefs and anxieties of the men of this age, especially those who are poor or in any way afflicted, these are the joys and the hopes of the followers of Christ. So, what's going on? Joys and hopes. So, hey, um, you're right. We're in the heart of summer. It's been so wonderful spending time with family and Mm -hmm. friends. You know, a lot of people are traveling right now. Um, We're getting ready. My daughter and I are getting ready to go on our college tour visits. So uh, getting all that ready for coming up on her senior year. So, um, but yeah, so life's great. Mm -hmm. How about you? Yeah, vacation was awesome. Did a little Central Florida vacation with the wife and the kids. Did a little Disney run. Went on the new Star Wars Rise of Resistance ride, which was pretty cool. My son, poor six-year-old John Paul, he was a little overwhelmed when the stormtroopers <laughs> were firing at him. He was like, did one of his like, Ugh, cowers his eyes and starts crying in the <laughs> middle of the ride, but he survived. Good. And uh, yeah, so that was beautiful. Uh, I, I know recently it's one of the most monumentous kind of moments for a long time news-wise, was the, the joy of the, the decision of um, the Supreme Court on overturning Roe v. Wade. Um, so, yeah, just there's I, – when I was um, – during college, I worked at the Susan B. Anthony List, which was one of the national mm-hmm. organizations kind of working towards this goal. And mm-hmm. so I got to see on the inside kind of how hard – People have worked, labored, prayed for the state. Not to mention everybody who's just kind of been on the sideline hoping and watching for this whole thing. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean – as everyone has said, our bishops have said the work is not over. It's not even close to over. Um, it turns to a more dedicated building up of a culture of life and everything. But yeah, the grace of God and the feast of the Sacred Heart to see that happen was was pretty cool. It was something that is undeniably like a great joy. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, I agree with you. And if you haven't had a chance yet, please check out our website. Um, We've got a lot of great information there, um, especially with um, pregnancy resources that are available in our area. So um, know that you're you're not alone. Um, There are lots of people out there that are willing to help. And if you know of anybody, please, please push them in the direction of uh, those resources that are that are standing by to help all of our moms. Mm. 
Beautifully said. Yeah, please. And everyone out there who is just kind of like kind of maybe awakening up to this moment for the, to the movement for the first time in life, there are so, so many ways to contribute to the culture of life, adoption, foster care, donating resources, local pregnancy centers, um, whatever you feel called to do. The Lord is asking for help in, in, in following this great moment with, with even better moments. So, Definitely. Yeah. All right, we're going to hop into our final little bit here from Bishop Walk on the Catholic letters and the big one, the book of Revelation. So stay tuned for that, and we'll see you on the flip side. Hello. In this episode of Gaudium et Spes, I will offer a conclusion to our study of the Bible. So we will talk about, I will talk about the book of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, and the Catholic epistles, and finally, the book of Revelation. It's the stunning conclusion. But first, a quick summary from the last presentation. At that one, we looked at the 12 letters between the Acts of the Apostles and the letter to the Hebrews. We talked about St. Paul's participation with the letters. Some he actually wrote, others were inspired by him and his theology. Most were written to address a need or to clarify some teaching. Paul is shown to be a passionate defender of the faith who wants only to see us, his children, come to know the true faith in Jesus Christ and thus to obtain the prize of everlasting life. Paul also wrote to fellow missionaries and leaders like Timothy and Titus and Philemon. The early church thought so much of the Pauline letters that they included them in the canon of sacred scripture. Now we turn to the letter to the Hebrews. This is a very unique book. Really, aren't they all unique in the Bible? But anyway, this is a very unique book. It's highly theological while tying in Old Testament themes constantly and describing them to Christ and to Christianity. This letter is associated with St. Paul because it was most often connected with Pauline letters in many Greek manuscripts. However, much is not known about Hebrews, that is, the author, the intended audience, and whether it is a book or an actual letter. The main theme of the letter to the Hebrews is, this is taken from the introduction in the New American Bible, is this, the priesthood and sacrifice of Jesus. It is written apparently to strengthen the addressee's faith and fervor, hence the author's writing that he wishes to give words of encouragement to the people. It's like a homily or a sermon that was given perhaps in a synagogue. It is a little like the Gospel of John in that it starts with an exalted tone. It speaks of the pre-existence of Jesus, his incarnation and exaltation. Here is from the first few verses of the letter to the Hebrews. In times past, God spoke in partial and various ways to our ancestors through the prophets. In these last days, he spoke to us through a son, whom he made heir of all things and through whom he created the universe, who is the refulgence of his glory, the very imprint of his being, and who sustains all things by his mighty word. When he had accomplished purification from sins, he took his seat at the right hand of the majesty on high, as far superior to the angels, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs." Sounds just a little bit like the prologue to John's gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, etc. And the letter to the Hebrews shows how salvation is ours. He's, the author writes that Jesus is like us in all things but sin, and as such, 
was able to offer the perfect sacrifice himself to the Father. He is higher than Moses, who, though faithful, served as a servant. Christ, on the other hand, is son and heir. And it's very interesting, even though the author speaks like this in very exalted terms, speaks about Jesus' glory, the fact that he is the highest priest, etc., the author talks a lot about how he shared our human nature. There's a great verse in the second chapter. Therefore, Jesus had to become like his brothers in every way that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest before God to expiate the sins of the people. Because he himself was tested through what he suffered, he is able to help those who are being tested. It is then kind of like an apologetic on Jesus' humanity, his suffering and his death, which must have been a stumbling block for many people at the time. Jesus' sacrifice fulfills and perfects the Old Testament sacrifices, which had to be offered again and again and again. Because he is the priest, the sacrifice, and the altar of sacrifice. In his obedience, in his sacrifice, God has announced salvation to all. When was the letter to the Hebrews written? Again, we don't know exactly. It appears as though St. Clement of Rome, in his letter to the Corinthians, cites Hebrews in A.D. 96, so we know that it was written before then. And with all the talk about a new sacrifice and the references to temple sacrifice in the Old Testament, perhaps it was even written before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in A.D. 70. But again, we have to say, we don't know. And just um, one thing that I really like is um, chapter 11 and, and onward. It is, um, it's where the author kind of brings up witnesses from the past, uh, Moses and Abraham and others, and, and kind of walks us through and said, they believed, they didn't see the results of their faith, you know, they didn't see the completion of God's plan, but they believed, and as he said, saluted it from afar, and it was because they believed that they were justified, they were made right with God. And so, for us as well, we don't see the finished product, we don't see the end. We know that the end goal is to be with God in heaven, but we haven't seen that it's not yet realized in us yet, and yet we are called to be like them, to have faith in God. And I love, I love the first verse of the chapter, of the 11th chapter. It confused me, confounded me for a long time. It is this. Faith is the realization of what is hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. That sounds like a contradiction. Faith is the realization of what is hoped for and evidence of things not seen. I was really kind of confused by that. But Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI spoke extensively on that. I really like it. And basically, you know, he was saying that, um, that we have faith in God's promise, right? Like Moses and Abraham and so many others did. We have that faith. And that faith, that sure hope, that knowledge, that expectation, really, because God is faithful, that expectation that it will be carried out actually brings it about in us. So longing for heaven, hoping for God's salvation, which is ours, that actually brings it about. It makes us right with God, justifies us with God. So anyway, I invite you to spend some time with that verse and the whole book and um, just to, to, to get that sense of, of, of what is faith and how can we strengthen our faith and how does our faith save us. 
It just basically says over and over again, it is our faith that urges us on toward salvation, God's prize. Stay firm and persevere. Okay, now we turn to what is what we call the Catholic letters. After the Pauline letters and after Hebrews, there are seven other letters. Three are ascribed to John, two to Peter, and one each from James and Jude. Catholic means universal, so it's not directed toward one particular person or church, whereas St. Paul would write to the Philippians or the Romans. These are just written for the universal church. That's why we call them Catholic. It also happens to be rather Catholic um, in, in that we read a lot about the teachings and practices that we know are true in the Catholic faith. Like the Pauline writings, these are arranged in descending order of length, with the three Johannine letters kept together, and Jude at the end. They were probably written during a time when the Gospels were written, or after, for the most part. So again, every time I, 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 I treat that, when were they written? Well, we say it could have been this, it could have been later, it could have been earlier. There's a lot of thought on that. But, they, but the, the scholars in the New American Bible say probably written during the time when the Gospels were written. From the introduction to the Catholic letters, we read this. With the exception of one Peter and one John, the ancient church showed reluctance to include the Catholic letters in the New Testament canon. Why? Because there was doubt that they had been written by the apostolic persons whose names were attached to them. The New Testament was seen as a deposit of faith of the apostles. However, it is clear that even though they were written later, they testify to the apostolic faith. And all are acknowledged to be canonical after the 4th or 5th century by nearly all Christians. Okay, so first is James. Although two of the disciples are named James, the letter of James was most likely not written by either of them. Otherwise, he would have identified himself as an apostle. There is another James in the Gospels, however, called the brother of the Lord in Matthew and Mark. Perhaps this is the one, the author. He was the leader of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, and Paul said that he is one of the pillars of the community in his letter to the Galatians. Also, in the Acts of the Apostles, James acts as a leader and spokesman. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, James was stoned to death in 62. The letter is addressed to the twelve tribes of the dispersion, probable that's a possible reference to all Christians who are exiled from their true home, which is heaven. And surprise, surprise, not sure when it was written. Some say before 70, others say around 95 to 100. Like so many of the letters in the New Testament, James gives an exhortation to persevere amidst trials and temptations. And what I really like a lot is, is just he's very concrete he says in it writes in the first chapter, be doers of the word and not merely hearers. That sounds a lot like Jesus who said, the one who hears the word and puts it into practice is the one who built his house on solid rock. We have to put our faith into practice. There's a lot of discussion over his theology in regard to faith and works. Some say that his line, faith without works is dead, is a contradiction of Paul's justification by faith. Many think that this was intended as a correction to a misunderstanding of Pauline teaching. I like that, actually. 
because we know that it's both. Our faith justifies us with God and brings us salvation, but that naturally, of course, makes us want to live our faith well. So he says, What good is it, brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can can that faith save him? Again, there's another little interesting tidbit there in the fourth chapter. The author says, If the Lord wills it, we shall live to do this or that. He says, don't don't take for granted that there will be a tomorrow. You know, you make these plans for tomorrow or next year or 10 years from now. He said, we should say, if the Lord wills it, we shall do live to do this or that. Many people say that, you know, God willing, this will happen. Or in Spanish, si Dios quiere, if God wants. And that comes from, in a large part, James chapter 4, verse 15. Then there is chapter 5, where we get the anointing of the sick, the sacrament, nearly word for word. So when I, am, as a priest and now bishop, am invited to anoint someone, I use that the text that comes from James. And it's this, basically. Are any among you who are sick? If so, then send for the priests of the church and let the priests pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick persons. And if they have committed any sins, their sins will be forgiven them. comes right out of the book of James. According to the Council of Trent, the anointing of the sick then is a sacrament instituted by the Lord and promulgated by blessed James the Apostle. Also, I really like this in the book of James It says, confess your sins to one another, a possible reference to what we now know as the sacrament of reconciliation or confession. And then I wrote down something else. Ah, there it is. I like this right at the end, the end of the the letter of James. My brothers, if anyone among you should stray from the truth and someone bring him back, he should know that whoever brings back a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. I just I like that because it reminds us of our need um, to not only work on ourselves, but to help one another to find forgiveness, to pray for them, especially someone who is in sin, to pray for them, to point it out, and to see if they will be brought back into the community and turn away from their sins. That will help them, and it will also help us. Okay, the first letter of Peter. This is actually addressed to the five provinces in Asia Minor, probably addressed mostly to Gentiles. Either way, it was written for all who have been converted and feel the alienation that comes after conversion. Maybe you know this if you came to the faith or, or yeah, were converted. You know, you know that how exciting it is at first, and everything is great, and you you want to be a super Christian and everything, and then you know over time. Trials, temptations, challenges come in, and we kind of lose that fervor. A lot of these letters were written to fan into flames these sparks that were in the Christians and that are in all of us. When Peter gives us an exhortation to be faithful in persecution, like James, we read in the first chapter, Although you have not seen him, that is Jesus, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, yet believe in him. You rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy as you attain the goal of your faith, the salvation of your soul. It also talks about how to be good examples in the world to Christians and non-Christians alike. When was it written? Probably in the 60s or a little bit later, so say scholars. 
And it ends with this great advice here that we pray a lot of times at night prayer. One of the last things we pray before we go to go to sleep from the fifth chapter toward the end. Be sober and vigilant. Your opponent, the devil, is prowling like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him steadfast in faith, knowing that your fellow believers throughout the world undergo the same sufferings. The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory through Jesus Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you after you have suffered a little. To him be dominion forever. Amen. The second letter of Peter to Peter is more of the same. Strength in persecution, endurance in trial, hope for the future, etc. And like some of Paul's letters, the second letter of Peter appears to take on specific questions that arose in the community, like dealing with those who deny the second coming of Christ. The author says, yes, it is delayed, that's, that's true, but it is inevitable, he is coming back. And then he says, remember, with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. In fact, he says, the delay is proof of God's patience with us. It refers to Paul's letters and other scriptures, which is kind of is really neat. It actually cross-references other books of the Bible in there. It also opens with a reference to Simon Peter as the author. And finally, we read in the third chapter, 3, 1, that this is his second letter. All of these help to give credence to the letter to, to kind of to cement it in apostolic times and even refer to, um, to uh, Simon Peter and his authority. Perhaps we can find a summary in two points in the third chapter. Do not be led into error and grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Again, these, all these letters really are trying to, to, to help people to endure in t- trial and temptation and not to be led into error. The second letter of Peter was not easily accepted into the Roman canon. A few people objected. Origen is probably most famous. He declared that they were both to be canonical while showing that others rejected the second. I'm sorry, that one and two Peter were to be canonical. But he said, some have rejected two Peter. But in the end, it was accepted as canonical and is part of our Bible. It could be the latest work in the New Testament. It could even be dated as late as 125. Why? Because it refers to the apostles as our ancestors who are now dead. And also the fact that it cites Paul's letters as being on par with the other scriptures shows some history. And finally, it points out problems that cropped up after the apostolic age. There were scoffers and deniers and problems with the interpretation of scriptures at that time. Okay, the three letters of John. First John, one John, similar to the Gospel of John in style and vocabulary. So it is agreed that it comes from the same school of thought, the Johannine school of thought. Some think that one John was written as a companion to the Gospel of John to help with its proper interpretation as it combats false ideas and brings things down to earth. It takes on knowledge, what, what the author calls knowledge, or Gnosticism perhaps, by bringing our faith down to earth. He says, 
what we have seen, what we have touched, what we have heard, this we proclaim to you. It's not just some lofty philosophy or some knowledge of some esoteric truth, but it's something that we have touched and heard and seen with our own eyes and hands and ears. Knowledge of God and love of others are inseparable. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, it says, and the truth is not in him. 1 John is especially helpful in the declaration of Jesus' divinity and humanity, and the prologue is like John's gospel, more emphasis on what the word made flesh means. There are two passages that may serve as a summary of the entire letter. 2.6 and 4.20. says, Whoever claims to abide in him ought to live as he lived. One cannot believe and hate at the same time. If you know God, you will know love. And then 4.20 says this, If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. For whoever does not love a brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Also interesting is John's description of sins at the end of the at the end of his first letter. He, he says this that we should pray for those who have sinned. And he says there are some sins that are deadly. We call them mortal sins. So here he kind of he 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 speaks of venial sins and deadly mortal sins. If someone ever asks, where is that in the Bible? Tell them it's in one John, right at the end, in the fifth chapter. And he says this, If anyone sees his brother sinning, if the sin is not deadly, he should pray to God and he will give him life. This is only for those whose sin is not deadly. There is such a thing as deadly sin, about which I do not say that you should pray. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that is not deadly. Very interesting. Right there in the Bible. Okay, great. 2 and 3 John. Both are just a few verses long. And this is interesting. It says in the commentary, perhaps as determined by the length of a piece of papyrus. Maybe that's it. They just wrote on that page and that's all. They, they, that's all the room they had. So that's why they're so short. Both were probably written around the end of the first century. Unlike the first letter of John, they were written as replies to problems with the church. There were deceivers. There were progressives, as they said. Perhaps that these are the, that refers to the Gnostics who believed that they were ahead or above the other Christians. The third letter of John, 3 John, is addressed to a specific person, Gaius. He wanted him to help secure means of hospitality for missionaries. He writes to thank him for his past help and ask him to keep giving help to, to missionaries and to others. And I love this. He says, don't be like Diotrephes who loves to dominate and does not acknowledge us. It's very interesting. He takes on very specific persons. He calls out people in the community. He shows that he has authority and, uh, and, and has knowledge of the church as well. Okay. Jude now. The last letter is Jude. Again, not identified as Jude or Judas. That is one of the apostles. Maybe another Jude, though, perhaps one mentioned as a brother of the Lord, like James in Matthew 13 or Mark 6. There are some striking similarities to the second letter of Peter. In fact, there's a lot of shared material, like among the synoptic gospels. 
It was probably written around the year 80 or later. The author of Jude wanted to write more, but had to write a short epistle quickly to warn believers against false teachers, whom he also called godless and intruders. We see a lot of this in the early years of Christianity, making it clear that there were a lot of problems, not only from the outside, that is persecutions, but also from the inside as well. And that leads rather nicely to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, also called the Apocalypse. It is hardly as straightforward as most of the other books of the Bible. It is very symbolic and thus hard to decipher. And it leads to a lot of interpretations and misinterpretations. It is. It represents a series of visions given to John. These are not to be taken literally. If so, then we see Jesus as a lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. No, it was clear to hearers at the time that the horn, a horn was a symbol of power and eyes symbolic of knowledge. Seven represents universal and per, universality and perfection. Thus, Jesus is shown in that image as the perfect and universal Lamb of God. There are a lot of symbolisms, a lot of symbols used in things like garments, colors, gems, numbers, for instance. Uh, four equals the world, six is imperfection, seven is perfection, twelve refers to Israel's tribes and the apostles, and indeed the whole world, and the number 1,000 is really refers to an immense number that cannot be counted. Severe language in this book is meant to keep folks from apostasy and show that the ultimate reward of martyrs is God, is heaven. He couldn't deal with this in soft and pleasant images like we find in the gospel, for instance, with the good shepherd or something like that. We need to remember that this was written during a horrible persecute, during horrible times of persecutions. The introduction calls it resistance literature, written to meet a crisis. Though the ultimate, though ultimate salvation in history will come with the second coming of Christ, the decisive struggle of Christ and his followers against Satan and his cohorts is already over. According to the, and this is what we read in the, in the introduction in the New American Bible. The book of Revelation had its origin in a time of crisis, but it remains valid and meaningful for Christians of all time. In the face of apparently insuperable evil, either from within or from without, all Christians are called to trust in Jesus' promise, Behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. Those who remain steadfast in their faith and confident and confidence in the risen Lord need have no fear. Suffering, persecution, even death by martyrdom, though remaining impenetrable mysteries of evil, do not comprise an absurd dead end. No matter what adversity or sacrifice Christians may endure, they will in the end triumph over Satan and his forces because of their fidelity to Christ the victor. This is the enduring message of the book. It is a message of hope and consolation and challenge for all who dare to believe. That's the end of the quote. So that's found in the introduction in the New American Bible. That's really important that we hear that this is a book of hope, promising us, leading us to the ultimate reward, and that is salvation. 
It speaks of John in the book, who was exiled on the island of Patmos, which is why some early church fathers ascribe the author to the author of the fourth, fourth gospel. Other fathers say that it's not the same person. Clearly, though, it's clear, though, that the author has a lot of authority and credibility since he writes such a, an important and sweeping book. Therefore, it was most certainly written by a close disciple of John. The date, we're not sure again, surprise, surprise, probably near the end of the reign of the emperor Domitian. The letters to the seven churches in the book are meant either to praise them or to chasten them. All seven churches were located in the Roman province of Asia, and the cities were noted not so much for the size of the Christian population there as much as for the importance of that city, and all were located fairly close together. After these letters to the churches, there is the vision of God in heaven, which is where a lot of people try to interpret things literally or use as prophecy. Then we get the punishments and plagues, the seven seals that are broken. There is talk of a dragon and beasts and and the Antichrist, all about the power of evil and the war that goes on between evil and good, presented in sweeping cosmic terms. The hearers of the day, those the contemporaries, would have understood a lot more of the symbols than we do. For instance, the first beast that rose up had seven heads, which no doubt represented the seven emperors, and the blasphemous names the book mentions are the divine names which they took on. The dragon, Satan, gave the beast power to persecute the church. And there's another historical reference there to one of the heads of the beast which was mortally wounded but appeared to be healed. That very well could represent a popular legend about Nero who many said would come back to life after death and rule again. He mortally wounded himself by slashing his own throat in A.D. 68. In fact, another head of the beast, Domitian, was said to be like Nero, only worse, maybe again symbolically coming back to life. He ruthlessly demanded to be called our Lord and God and Jupiter. Christians had to either worship the emperor and his image or suffer martyrdom. This is very interesting, I think, and important that we, that we not take it literally, that we not get caught up in, in some of the interpretations that people like to throw around. Some people have said, you know, well, this is, this is all about that chip and credit cards or barcodes or things like that. Other people were even recently talking about, you know, a code embedded in the vaccines and everything, and that's the mark of the beast and all of that. But we have to remember what it was. It really referred to what was happening at, in that day, the persecutions that were happening to the Christians. It's not so much prophecy about something happening in the future or in our own day. It is. It was a message of hope to strengthen what was already happening. It was like the end of the world for them. It was as though there was a dragon in the heavens sweeping a third of the, sky, the stars to the, sky, to the ground. They didn't need to be scared about some prophecy in the future. They needed to be given hope, and that's what this book is about. People ask about the number 666 because that's very interesting. In the book of Revelation, it says, this is how you shall know the beast, the Antichrist. It is 666. Often numbers were used to represent something or as a code to a particular name. 
since the letters of the Hebrew and Greek alphabets had numerical values. There are a lot of potential candidates for 666. A lot have been proposed. But in the, in the commentary here in the New American Bible, they say it probably refers to the Emperor Nero, because the Greek form of his name equals 666. And if we want further proof, the Hebrew equivalent of his name is 616. And one of the earliest manuscripts of the book of Revelation has the number of the beast as 616. As mentioned before, 6 represents imperfection. Thus, 666 is a horrific imperfection. Chapter 4 gives us a wonderful image of heaven. 144,000 are saved. And again, that's symbolic. I hope we're not thinking that there's only 144,000 souls in heaven. 12 represents, again, as I said, the 12 tribes of Israel, the apostles. It's squared to make a point. That's 144. And then multiplied by a thousand, which means immensity. Perhaps it refers to all Christians, all who are saved. And the, the, the imagery there looks a lot like our Mass, the Eucharist, with hymns and smoke and incense, people clothed in white garments, a multitude gathered to sing and worship, shouting, singing, Hosanna in the highest. The book ends with an epilogue that reminds hearers and readers of the themes introduced at the beginning. Stay firm, hold fast, do not commit apostasy. Behold, I am coming soon. I bring with me the recompense I will give to each according to his deeds. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Very appropriate. This is very appropriate for the end of the book and the end of the Bible. And it would be nice if it concluded with an Amen. It almost does. The penultimate verse in the Bible is Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. But then there's one more saying grace to all grace. Um, yeah, uh, offering grace to all people. But it's, it's kind of, that would be so nice if it just kind of ended with amen. It almost does. I'm going to say it does. Okay, great. So just a little conclusion to all the, to the Bible and, and these episodes on the Bible. I just wanted to give an overview of all of the books of the Bible. Really, just a teaser, if you will so that you will be a little more comfortable with the Bible. I wanted to show that these books are very different, but all are inspired by God and all fulfill God's plan of revealing himself to us and invite response from us. Now, how can you remember all of this? Well, don't worry, I can't. I ha We have so many uh, commentaries. We have so many resources at our fingertips, on our phones, you know, on the Internet. So just keep on reading and praying and studying. Follow up with the cross-references. Look things up. Ask questions. It's easier than ever to look things up today, provided you use a reputable source. You know, don't just Google something and believe the first thing you read, but look for something, especially that is taught by the Catholic Church, from the bishops, from the magisterium, the Catholic Encyclopedia, Catechism of the Catholic Church, etc. Remember that reading the Bible is not an academic affair. Pray with it. Ask the Holy Spirit for guidance. Let it lead you into a deeper relationship with God. Be on the lookout for more opportunities for growth in your parish and elsewhere. 
feel free to suggest a Bible study, and I would say be prepared to help lead one. Also, promote these episodes, tell people about these episodes so they can learn a little bit more about the books of the Bible. Thank you for listening. Thank you for taking your faith seriously, for wanting to grow in your faith. May God bless you in abundance as you discover him and his promises in sacred scriptures, the living word of God. All right, welcome back, everybody. Suzanne, we're done with the Bible. We are. Incredible. Yeah. Gosh, that was fast. (laughs) (laughs) It's very true. I mean, as as always, Bishop is is just cramming a huge amount of information uh, in a very small windows of time. But doing a great job and some wonderful points said uh, about each of the letters. Um, I know one of the things that struck me first is um, his commentary on Hebrews. And um, one of the things I like, comparing literary styles, sometimes mm-hmm. I read Paul and I'm always like, I need 14 books to help me understand this one paragraph in St. Paul because it's so theologically dense. When I read Hebrews, mm-hmm. um, well, the first of these letters that, that uh, Bishop was mentioning, I'm like, oh, this is the guy he would entrust. Like, if you need a 175-page book written on a topic that you need everybody in the audience to understand perfectly the topic that you're trying to explain, I would hire this guy. I okay. would I would hire this guy. He just does it. If you've never read Hebrews front to back, it's so methodical. The analogies are very accessible. The history is explained very well. Mm-hmm. And by the end of it, you're just like, I know exactly where Jesus fits in with the whole Old Testament and this whole kind of system of the priesthood and sacrifice and the temple. It, it's, hard to, it's hard to walk away and not get it, I, yeah. I think you would say. Whereas mm-hmm. St. Paul, you can read Romans for the rest of your life, and you're still going to be like, what What did he mean by that <laughs> sometimes? Um, so I love that. Um, and then the other thing that struck me was also kind of the flip side, speaking of literary styles, First John, um, something we did recently with our kids, we read First John as a letter, and it's mm-hmm. kind of like that scene in The Office uh, where Michael Scott is like, can you just explain this to me like I'm five? And right. it's like, if you were looking to somebody to be like, can you explain Christianity to me like I'm five? I'd be like, Here's the first letter of St. John. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just very kind of black and white. God is love. You can't love God if you don't love your brothers and sisters. Stay away from evil doing. Stay close to the Lord. And it's like, it's just so, it's so beautiful. There's this diversity in just the New Testament itself as far as how complex you want to go, how simple do you want to go in between or something like that. The different author styles and stuff, I just, I I adore. Um, So yeah, that was my immediate takeaway. I don't know what you what else you thought. Yeah, well, remarks. you know, um Revelation obviously is challenging. Are you gonna to talk about least. this really? You're gonna I think a little bit. Um I I think the thing that struck me the most was, you know, just a reminder of all the symbolism mm-hmm. that exists within it. And uh it kind of reminded me of being in high school English. You know, when we had to read poems and uh, interpret what those, the symbolism and the Mm -hmm. metaphors and stuff meant in these particular poems. I mean, I don't know about you, but I seem to always get it wrong. Whatever the teacher (laughs) wanted, I had the opposite view. And so. But there's no wrong answer to what a poem means, right? Well, but when you're getting a grade in a class, there is. So, (laughs) no, I think the thing about Revelations, I think that we have to remember is that it offers hope to all of us, you know, and it is a series of visions that contains dramatic 
and symbolic imagery. And really, it should stir up your senses just kind of like a good movie does. Right. You know, exactly. where you start thinking about things and, you know, it, it should really take you back to your faith and center you on, you know, really God and what was he here for? You know, sometimes... Uh, you can take things literally. And I don't necessarily believe that that's what the writers of the Bible expected us to do. You know, there's passages like pluck out your eyes and cut off your arm because they have been the source of sin in the past. Well, you know, I don't think that that's really what they expect us to do. Right. Um, yeah, you, you, the passage you mentioned from Jesus himself, you know, yeah. if your right arm, if your right hand causes you to sin, right eye causes you to sin, um, get rid of it. And mm-hmm. that's one of those where like, I think, I think he's being hyperbolic. I hope he's being hyperbolic. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think you're exactly right. So the language of poetry, it is more along that than reading your, you know, local newspaper talking about an arrest that was made last night at two o'clock in the morning and sure. these are the people who are saying definitely not that everybody can read that but it is meant it is meant just like you said to stir your senses stir your imagination and I I have always found it's revelation unlike even Jude for example mm-hmm. if you read Jude here it's very direct you can take it to prayer and it's pretty just kind of straightforward revelation you can take to prayer a million times and you'll get 999,000 different experiences. <laughs> like it's just it's meant to entice your imagination. There's so many just beautiful scenes and um also some horrific scenes. Um Definitely. but but also meant to fill your heart with those thoughts of of what's it how's it all going to shake out in the end? What what's the what is the next phase of of Christ's action in the world? Um me personally, as a marriage and family life guy, the amount of times I've returned to the the final two chapters where How's it supposed to end? It, it ends like a wedding feast. You know, yes. it's like if I could have thought of all the endings God could have come up with for the <laughs> world, the, the imagery of a wedding feast, a bride being adorned for her husband, it's just it's perfect. It you know, is. it's like, it, you know, um, it's just so glorious. So pick it up, wrestle with it. Let, and especially that's one of those where you like before you pick it up and read it, it's like Holy Spirit help me read Revelation yes <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, and he'll he'll get you through it definitely and uh, yeah yeah well, now, what are we going to talk about next well we've got another human interest story yes. this yes. coming up so TBD the character in question is uh, to be determined <laughs> but um, and then afterwards Bishop is going to start talking to us about. His ministry, his he life is. as uh, as a bishop, which yeah. I'm super excited for. Me too. Um, Me too. To what a... goes on behind the curtain? Yeah, <laughs> Not that there's much of a curtain with bishop if you've gotten to know our bishop. True. But uh, but definitely get an insight into what his his day to day existence is like and how he mm-hmm. wrestles with the various things that he's responsible for. It's going to be a really cool series of episodes. So stay tuned for that, and we'll see you here back in a couple of weeks. Sounds great. Thank you for tuning in today to the Gaudium et Spes podcast. If you would like to know more about our podcast, please visit gaudiumetspes.net or go to ptdiocese.org and click the button that says podcast. If you listen to the audio version from an app such as iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify, be sure and rate, review, and comment. If you watched us on YouTube, make sure you like and subscribe or leave us a comment there as well. Thank you for joining us.